Well, welcome back to the third in our series of three on the letter from Peter, one of the original disciples of Jesus Christ, to a group of scattered Christians in Asia Minor. Or in uh, 1 Peter, if you've got a Bible there to look on with, that'll be a help. And uh, the outline is in front of you. Do I have to press anything, or is this alright? Fantastic. I want to begin today by asking you a question. I've uh, begun most, uh, I think this is the third time I've begun with a question for you to think about. Today's question is How do you respond to being different to those around? How do you respond to being different? How do you feel when you're the odd one out? Uh, you know, when you turn up to a casual dress event in uh, formal gear, or even worse, in fancy dress. How would you feel? Are you cringing as you even think of it? A few years ago, my family and I went overseas, mainly to Britain, but our big adventure for the trip was a, a 10 day uh, jaunt into the south of Spain. So, not into one of the major cities. Uh, but uh, sort of out in the middle of nowhere in the south of Spain. And my youngest son still has uh, vivid memories of that trip. Whenever we talk about it, he remembers something that none of us really particularly remember, a, a, a minor event in the scheme of things. We were on the Madrid subway, travelling across town to catch a bus. I was stressed about making time and when we had the right train and all that sort of stuff. That's not what he was stressed about. Uh, Mike was uh, a cute, fair-skinned, blonde-haired Australian seven-year-old at the time. Uh, he was in a carriage of swarthy Spaniards. Also, he, that's how he remembers it. Dark hair, not white skin particularly. And he, he had a vivid memory uh, which coloured his whole trip to Spain and probably uh, represented it for him. His vivid memory is that he was very embarrassed and uncomfortable because everyone in the carriage was staring at him. They couldn't take their eyes off him. He was different, he stood out. And he, he remembers, he's quite sensitive to all this, he remembers having nowhere to look. They all just, can you imagine that? How would you feel? How would you respond to that? Uh, a week on campus, as we saw either in that video then, Maybe you felt it uh, wearing their new T-shirt. Uh, feel like you stand out a bit. Uh, those people dressed in medieval dress in the middle of summer must certainly feel it. Aware of all eyes on them. What's your default response in those sorts of situations? Now, there's a number of uh, instinctive reactions, and I'm going to do a little diagram for a change. We represent difference by shapes. So here's a. A shape, and he's in minority amongst a whole lot of other shapes. There's a few reactions you can have to being here. First one is you can kind of uh, try and blend in a bit, so you know, cut off some of the curves, you know, sort of knock off a bit of the edges, so you look a bit more light goes around. Blend in. Look at a rubber. Yes, come here. Alternatively, you can sort of be amongst it and try and knock some edges off the other ones. Make them slightly a bit more 
I've got those thoughts yet, which I can try and change, or some sort of revolution. Of course, one option is to just get out of it, to separate. So you can be who you are and make it stay being who they are. There's a number of different reactions. Blend in. Revolution. Separate. I wonder what your instinctive reaction is. Do you want to just get out of there? Do you want to stick up for yourself? Explain why you're in fancy dress while nobody else is? Um, encourage them to go and find a costume? Or maybe... Uh, what, 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 what's your default response to being different like that? It's important for Christians, the letter we're looking at at the moment, is written to Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor, and Peter... Uh, writes to encourage them to stand firm in their present situation where they found themselves to be quite different to those around them. His main point is found in two, chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honourably among the Gentiles so that though they malign you as evildoers, they may see your honourable deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge. So they're not only different, right? But others are noticing that they're different and as humans I want to do with those who are different, they're giving them a hard time, which Peter refers to as maligning them as evildoers. This is even further than just feeling like the odd one's out. It's like people are jeering them or laughing at them for wearing the formal gear at the casual event or for their skin colour or hair colour. In this case, they're being maligned, jeered, laughed at for being Christians. And last week, well, well, last time we were here, not last week now, but we saw that they're different. Their difference is not just an accident. It's not that they didn't read the invitation properly. It has come about because God has set them apart to be his special people. This is who they are to be. They're to live for him now, not themselves. And it's put them out of line, out of whack with the beliefs and values and behaviours of those who live around them. And this week we're going to focus on what Peter has to say. What does he urge them to do when they find themselves in that situation? Which of the options will it be? Separate, flee, get out of there, set up a separate community, will it be to seek revolution to try and change those around, will it be a don't rock the boat kind of policy? What will it be? And again, that verse, those verses I read out to you before, I think actually put forward the key principle, the key principle behind what Peter has to say to these people. Listen to it again, listen to it carefully. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honourably among the Gentiles so that, though they malign you as evildoers, they may see your honourable deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge. Now they can respond to their situation where they're to live honourably among them. That's the key principle. Particularly, they're to abstain from a particular way of life. They're to abstain from what Peter calls the desires of the flesh. 
You see, there's not just a battle going on from external factors, from those around who are jeering or laughing at them or giving them a hard time. There's an internal element as well. It's what those external factors plug into that's an issue. The desires of the flesh. The flesh literally is the stuff that humans are are made of. However, this is not about anti-materialism. It's not about some kind of be spiritual and forget about the physical stuff. Because in the Bible, flesh is used in another sense. Flesh is used to describe things which are in contrast to the things of God. It's particularly used to emphasise the temporariness and weakness of things in contrast to the permanence and power of God. We saw an example of it last week in 1 Peter 1, 23-25, where Peter's encouraged him, saying, this is how you've got started in this different way of life. You've been born anew, he says, not of perishable, but of imperishable seed through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. There's a contrast between flesh and the word of the Lord there. It's to do with permanence and power. Desires of the flesh are those human desires and appetites for things which are contrary to God's good and perfect will. And Peter's saying to them, those around you are being carried along by these desires of the flesh, while the Christians are actually resisting that. They're to resist that. They're not to be carried along with those desires of the flesh, even though it means they're being maligned. So in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, he sort of brings out this, this situation that they're in. Live for the rest of your earthly life, no longer by human desires, but by the will of God. You've already spent enough time doing, in doing what the Gentiles like to do, living in licentiousness, passions, drunkenness, revels, carousing and lawless idolatry. They are surprised that you no longer join them in the same excesses of dissipation and so they blaspheme. There's a, last week we talked, last time we talked about this surprising difference. They're going along with this tide, this flood, this flowing that way and the Christians no longer join in. They're going a different way and it's causing them grief. And the challenge for these Christians is to abstain from those desires of the flesh which would mean that you go along with the flow they're to resist walking in the way of life of those around them, which has a powerful pull. Let's face it. But they're to resist. It's a bit like going, trying to get onto a train at Redfern Station at 8.45 when a train from the North Shore is just pulled into the platform. Have <laughs> that experience? It's that kind of going against the flow or going, going to eat gelato with friends when you're on a dairy-free diet. So just not, just not joining in not being quite the same. They're trivial examples, aren't they? We'll look look at uh, more real examples later. But they're trying to live in a world which is going in a different direction. And Peter wants to encourage them. He urges them to keep doing that. Don't go with those desires of the flesh. But it's more positive than that too. It's not just a don't. It's not just an abstaining. It's not just about avoiding stuff. It involves living positively in an alternative way. He says, live good lives among them. You see, the model isn't actually separating out. You know, instead of trying to catch that train, you drive the car, or you just don't go out for gelato. It's not like that. They are to positively live good lives among those around them. 
And those around them are described there literally as the nations. That word translated Gentiles is literally the word the nations, which is a term rich if you know the Old Testament in the Bible. It's a term used by Israel to describe the non-Jewish people around them. And the whole story of the Old Testament talks about this intention of God in specially setting apart a people for himself who live for him with their God among the nations in order to bless the nations. And that's further borne out by the purpose that Peter gives them for living this way, living these good lives in contrast to those around. They to live this way so that Though they malign you as evildoers, they may see your honourable deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge. You've got the picture of what's going on. The Christians have been born again by God's action to be set apart for him. Therefore, they don't join in the way of life of their peers. Their peers notice and give them a hard time, maligning them, accusing them of being evildoers. You can imagine the taunts judgmental, holier-than-thou do-gooders, foolish, self-denying prudes, intolerant bigots. You hear the maligning, the accusations of being evildoers. And the response of the Christians is not to be self-defence. It's not to fight fire with fire, to return the fire. They're to handcuff and continue to live good lives, giving those around no basis for their accusations. You see, they accuse them of evil, while it's plain to see that it's just not true. There's what you might call dissonance. There's an incongruity. It's like in music where notes are put together which just don't go, it doesn't sound right and just begs to be resolved somehow. There's dissonance. These people are claiming one thing about these Christians, while it's plain to see there's a plain life being lived which suggests exactly the opposite. The accusation of evil doing is clearly empty and unsupportable. And Peter wants to bring about this dissonance. Keep living among them. Don't fight them. Don't return fire with fire. Keep living those good lives among them. Bring about this dissonance. Even further, it goes even further, there's a hope that the realisation of this dissonance will bring honour to God. You see it there. They may see your honourable deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge. Not so much, gee, they're a nice person, gee, they're a good person. But they see this life lived. It doesn't fit with the accusations and there's a glorifying of God. Is he saying that people will see lives and become Christians, convert to Christianity? Well, I think there is an element in that. Um, In one of the case studies in chapter 3, where he's sort of filling out what this life looks like, he talks about uh, Christian wives living with non-Christian husbands. Listen to what he says in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. He says to Christian wives, in the same way, Accept the authority of your husbands so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won over without a word by their wives' conduct when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. And there is an element of 
the Christian's good life actually attracting people to the Christian faith here. I've seen this happen. You may have well too, you may actually have experienced this. I believe, for me, the ultimate example of this actually being a powerful way to, of people being attracted to the Christian faith was when I heard of a guy called David who started to be involved with Christianity through a bush dance. It's unbelievable, isn't it? I, I can't get over it. But that's what he'll say. You talk to him, how did you first get involved with Christianity? It was at a bush dance. It's not because they were particularly good dancers. Um, I don't know what you feel about bush dancers. That seems a very unlikely way, as fun as they might be. But he said, the way these people treated each other. I've never seen anything like it. Never seen anything like it. They loved one another. And I wanted a bit of that. I had never experienced that before. And started being involved and come to church. A bush dance. Lives lived well, good lives, lived among those who don't believe, actually attracting, winning people over. But I think Peter's particularly thinking about a future time when God will be honoured by these good lives. He particularly mentions the time when God will get glory when he comes to judge. That time when the life of every person is assessed under the pure and impartial gaze of God. Evil will be shown up for what it is. Goodness will be clear to all. The great day of revealing of what is good and what is not. Oh, that's a great day, isn't it? I'm looking forward to that day. But on that day, those who falsely accuse those who live good lives will have to acknowledge the truth. They have to say God, is, God was doing something there in those lives. It will be clear on that day. You see the principle that's uh, developing here? It's, it is a principle of maintaining difference, living good lives, even when opposed for it, even when maligned for it. But that good life, those good lives are lived among the nations or the people around. It, it's, it's a principle of engagement, not detachment. Engagement in order to have a positive effect on the people around. That's the principle that Peter's putting forward. And then he goes on, Peter goes on, just trying to fill this out a bit. Shows how that principle of engaging difference might actually work itself out in various relationships that his readers find themselves in. It's what it looks like. He does this by giving four short case studies. The first in chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, concerns being a citizen under the authority of governments, particularly the Roman Empire. And the second would have been, in those days, quite a common household situation. That is, concerns being a Christian slave under the authority of a master who may not be Christian. That's in two, chapter 2, verses 18 to 20, slaves and masters. Thirdly, which I mentioned earlier, is to do with Christian wives living with non-Christian husbands in 3, 1 to 6. You see that those first three case studies involve situations where the Christians are under the authority of another who may not be Christian. And the fourth and more general situation he goes on to talk about is those of Christians living among hostile neighbours. That's from chapter 3, verses 8 to 22. And we're not going to, we haven't got time to look in detail at all of those, 
So I want to firstly draw our attention to an underlying theme in this material that keeps popping up. There's that principle being applied all the time, but there's, there's, a, there's a paradigm being used to support the way Peter says they could, should conduct themselves in all these situations. You see, they're all situations in which his readers are vulnerable. They're under the authority of others. Perhaps people who might be hostile to them. They live next door to people who are maligning them. You've had any neighbour fights? It's very stressful and difficult. This is the situation these people are in. And the word Peter uses again and again in this material is submit. Might be a bit surprising at first. In some translations it says accept the authority of the government. Accept the authority of the masters. Submit to your husbands. It literally means order yourself under. It's not the language of revolution, is it? Um, it's, It's actually perhaps a bit uncomfortably passive. Neither, but it's not retreat either. You know, get out of there. That's not what Peter says. He says, submit. Now, this, I think this whole, this whole thing feels and reads a bit weird for us. Because we live in a society where personal freedom and individual rights are just assumed. And Peter opens the door for us, if you like, on a very different world. You see, in 21st century Australia, we don't put up with people maligning or persecuting anyone. You stick up for your rights, don't you? Submission. Well, generally, it's not a popular concept today, um, unless you're a boss or a parent. If you're a boss or a parent, submission is a great word. But for us, almost intrinsic to the word submission are ideas of oppression, of self-seeking power. This is a different world. You see, as Peter uses that word submission, it's actually quite a neutral word. It doesn't have those oppressive, self-seeking power kind of connotations. It literally means order yourself under. The President of the United States, arguably one of the most powerful men on the planet, happily submits himself to his security detail. He happily submits himself. Most powerful person on the planet. He doesn't doesn't grumble because they're being oppressive and bossy. He submits himself happily. We order ourselves under others' authority every day. For our good, without assuming that's oppressive. Uh, we, for instance, we submit to the road, road rules. Well, more or less, most of them. And usually as a safety issue. And when somebody blatantly flaunts a road rule and puts others in danger by doing it, we're indignant. Especially when it's us who might be in danger, I've noticed. But we're indignant when they do that. We don't usually cheer on the offender and say, yeah, you go for it, you stick it to that oppressive regime who put those road rules in place, do we? We happily order ourselves under those rules, that authority. 
So before we disregard Peter's instructions as some quaint advice from a different era, we particularly need to notice that this submissive tone is based not on the cultural norms of the day, but it's a strategy employed by Jesus Christ himself. Peter's speaking here to Jesus' followers of every age. We see embedded in the centre of this material in verses 20 to 25. In the middle of these instructions is this paradigm, this underlying paradigm. Have a look at it with me. Verse 20. If you endure when you are beaten for doing wrong, what credit is that? But if you endure when beaten for doing wrong, But if you endure when you do right and suffer for it, you have God's approval. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you should follow in his steps in case you hadn't got it. To this you have been called, leaving you an example, so you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that free from sins we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were going astray like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. See, the underlying paradigm for what Peter says to these people is the cross of Jesus Christ. Peter gives that as a basis for his instruction, the example of Jesus. So this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Notice a couple of things that Peter draws our attention to about Jesus' sufferings. Firstly, it was suffering for doing right. See, Jesus' suffering was clearly a situation of innocent suffering. Not only was Jesus not doing wrong, he was actually doing good at the time. In chapter 1.19, Peter describes Jesus on the cross as a lamb without spot or blemish. No defect. Explaining the nature of his death as a sacrifice to turn aside God's wrath. He of all human beings had never done anything to deserve the suffering and abuse he endured. And throughout this material, Peter emphasised that Christians must make sure, like Jesus, they don't deserve the persecution they are receiving. 2.16, as servants of God live as free people, yet do not use your freedom as a pretext for evil. 2.20, if you endure when you're beaten for doing wrong, what credit is that? But if you endure for doing right and suffer for it, you have God's approval. 3.17, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if suffering should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. It's underlying all this material, this innocent suffering. And their innocent suffering they're receiving from the hands of those who malign them should not be a surprise to these Christians. Don't be surprised to them being called. It's what it was like for Jesus, it's what it would be like for his followers. Further, in that ultimate situation of unjust suffering, Jesus endured it patiently without retaliation. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. 
Jesus did not return abuse for abuse. And again, this comes up again and again in this material. It's partly behind the idea of submit. It's not fight. It's not revolt. Revolt. It's about submission because this is how Jesus died on the cross. There's a reason why he was able to do it. That's because he trusted himself to God who judges justly. He knew who he had to obey. He knew whose commendation mattered. It was God, his trustworthy father. And so he endured. He didn't take matters into his own hand. Presumably he could have. He could have zotted off all those who were abusing him, treating him unjustly. He could have just done that. He didn't. He didn't. He didn't retaliate. In a way that was crucial to Jesus achieving what he was doing on the cross. He came right to the heart of evil, one of the evilest acts in human history. He was, a, he was a victim of it. And he didn't join in. He didn't return abuse for abuse. No deceit was found in his mouth. He endured patiently and trusted himself to God. And it's very clear that this is to be an example for how Christians, the Christians Peter writes to, are to endure their present situation of unjust suffering. Their follow is an example. Notice it's not just an example. So, you know, it wasn't that Peter makes it clear it's not just that Jesus died on the cross to provide this example for us. He makes it really clear to achieve something for us. It's to bring healing. It's to bring those who are going astray, those who are lost sheep, to bring them back to the shepherd of souls. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. There's something more going on than the example. There's no doubt about that. It does form a basis, a paradigm underlying what Peter has to say to these innocently suffering Christians. One of the first case studies is about actually being under authorities, being a citizen. As there in verse 13, he says, For the Lord's sake accept the authority of every human institution, whether of the emperor as supreme or of the governors as sent by him to punish those who do wrong and praise those who do right, for it is God's will that by doing right you should silence the ignorance of the foolish. As servants of God, live as free people, yet do not use your freedom as a pretext for evil. Honour everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honour the emperor. Again, what, what are they to do as citizens? Let's think about this particular case study. Remember we're talking about the Roman Empire here, by the way. And this stage of the Roman Empire was definitely not Christian. There's a whole cult about around the Roman Empire where you worship the Roman Emperor. This is definitely not a Christian authority here. And Peter says, well you find yourself in the Roman Empire and the Emperor and also those he sent to actually bring order and justice. <coughs> Submit to it. He doesn't say try and make it Christian. He doesn't try, he doesn't say set up a separate nation. He says, submit to it. Now, at this point, you may be thinking of extremes. So I said, but what about, this, this really does seem a bit passive, what about governments who are oppressive, who are corrupt? And it's just, it just breaks with us, doesn't it, that people would say this about nothing less than the pagan Roman Empire. No great friend of Christians. <coughs> he says, submit. 
What about those Christians who plotted against Adolf Hitler? Were they disobeying Peter's words here? Uh, I, I admit there are extreme examples that would be, have been hard for Christians to sort out over the years. I have two things to say. One, we don't go too quickly there. There's some very challenging words about submitting to our governments, which we in Australia particularly need to hear very clearly and loudly. There seems to be innate distrust and cynicism about government. Some of it may be founded well, but by and large, we have good government in this country. I guess in some situations where it's extreme, we actually have recourse within the systems of government to redress injustice and oppression. We're in a very uh, happy situation where there are actually laws to protect people against unjust treatment. So part of submitting is to use those um, ways and systems that the government has, has provided itself to bring about order and justice. Not to overthrow it, necessarily. I agree there are extreme examples, but don't let those actually help us not hear what this has to say to us about a fundamental attitude towards governing authorities. But notice it's from the context of fearing God. You can live as free people in this as citizens, but you're fundamentally God's people there. As servants of God live as free people. It's still quite clear where the priorities lie. But Peter makes a point of saying, don't let that, the reality of that priority is God is God. God is the ruler of all the nations, of all the governments. They are there because he has put them there. So don't let that, make sure, that, don't let that reality mean that you live not submitting to the government. Actually live under the things that God has put in place for the good ordering of society. The second case study we'll have a very quick look at is this neighbours one. The maligning neighbours, the hostile neighbours. Starts there in verse 8 of chapter 3. Finally, all of you have, have unity of spirit, sympathy, love for one another, a tender heart and humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or abuse for abuse, but on the contrary, repay with a blessing. It is for this that you were called that you might inherit a blessing. For those who desire life and desire to see good days, let them keep their tongues from evil and their lips from speaking deceit. Let them turn away from evil and do good and let them seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. For the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who will harm you if you are eager to do what is good? But even if you do suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear and do not be intimidated, but in your heart sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make your defence to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and reverence. Keep your conscience clear, so that when you are maligned, those who abuse you for your good conduct in Christ may be be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if suffering should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. See this situation of living among people who who might be abusing them, maligning them, 
And the first thing, picking again, picking up again, all through this, this is this paradigm of how Christ endured unjust suffering. He says, return evil, not with evil, or not with abuse, but on the contrary, repay with blessing. Just as Christ died without abusing his accusers, he died for their good, for their forgiveness. He says, resist that temptation to fight back. Resist it. Not just resist it, not just bring your teeth and repay with blessing. Do good to your enemies. This is radical stuff, isn't it? This is genuine difference. This is far from standing on your rights, from separating out, from grumpily complaining. This is repaying your enemies with blessing. Sounds a little bit like loving your enemies, doesn't it? Remember Matthew chapter 5? I think Peter was listening carefully to the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, He could hear Jesus up on the Mount. He was right up near him. Listen to what he says. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Again, verse 43 of chapter 5, Matthew 5, You have heard it was said, You shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy, but I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven for he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Very similar, isn't it? Be peacemakers. Even when people persecute you, love your enemies. Fear God, is the second thing he says. There's a commendation to seek and a condemnation to fear. And it's God's, not humans. It's very clear. We seek God's commendation. God's will done. And we fear God's condemnation. Not those of humans. That's what Peter says to his readers. And finally, when they are called to give an account... And I think in here he may have it in mind when they're dragged into court. Now this is, a, this is a Christian, this is an evildoer. And the judge says, well give an account. What's, defend yourself. They're to do it gently, with reverence, keeping their conscience clear. You get the tone? It's the Jesus tone. It's for the other's good. It's gentleness, it's blessing, not abuse not returning evil with evil. Uh, in 1979, uh, there's a guy called Billy Graham. You may have heard of Billy Graham. He's a famous uh, speaker for the Christian faith. He uh, goes all around, well, not so much anymore, he used to go all around the world with very large kind of rallies. He was here in Sydney in 1979 at the Randwick Race Course. He was interviewed on one of those current affairs shows by a guy called Mike Willsey. Uh, and uh, they were talking and it got round to uh, assurance, assurance of heaven Mike Willis, he said, are you sure you're going to heaven? and Billy Graham said, 
absolutely. Mike Willisie was completely shocked. Didn't know what to say. You, you mean you're, you're sure of going to heaven? You can't be sure of going to heaven. Yep, absolutely. And this is why. Because Jesus died for my sin and he was raised again. And so it went on. It was brilliant. It was this double take. He was called to give a defence for his hope. And he did it well with gentleness and respect. What that, what's this got to say to us as Christians in 2004? I think people would call us aliens and strangers as well as Christians, followers of the same Jesus. I guess this has raised enough, a, a number of questions for Christians. Are you living good lives among those who are not Christians? See, this material really challenges disengagement. The good lives to be lived among those who are not Christian. The option is not to retreat into some holy huddle. It's a great temptation. It's far more comfortable and easy. But that's not what Peter says. It's not what God is saying to Christians. Live good lives among them. Don't disengage. It challenges the blending in, that subtle dropping of principles. Just so you don't, you don't want to seem too black and white. Just a nice non-threatening grey will be fine. I'll just copy that assignment. Or I'll let my friend copy the assignment. Nobody will know. It's a loving thing to do, isn't it? They'll be a bit upset with me if I don't. Well, that's too hard to think about Christianity in my subjects. I'll just pretend to think what they'd like me to think and lay low. Surely it won't hurt anyone if we sleep together. It's normal, isn't it? Everybody's doing it. We love, we love one another, we're committed, we're not prudes. That gossip session is just delicious. I love that gossip session. We really connect well when we're talking about other people behind their back. <laughs> it's really nice to have that in common. I enjoy that. I mean, I wouldn't want to wreck a perfectly good friendship by not joining in or suggesting that we talk about something else for a while. Non-threatening shades of grey are not possible. It's not an option to live good lives among them. Now the basis for living differently is clear in 1 Peter. This is not just obeying a set of rules. It's the stuff we talked about last time. You are God's people now, Peter would say. You are loved by him. You bought with it at an astronomically great price. The death of his own son, Jesus Christ. There's really good reason to live this way, to be set apart and different. And if you're not a Christian here today, make no mistake, there will be enormous changes in becoming a Christian. Some of them may involve discomfort. The reasons for doing it are compelling, and the rewards of living this way are fulfilling and eternal, but there will be change involved. What about how you responding to the tensions which come about because you belong to Christ? Another question is put to us. Are you rejoicing them or resisting them? The hard time you might get uh, for following Jesus. It actually comes with the territory, Peter would say. This is what you're called to. 
Now, there may be extreme cases where you avail yourself of God-provided means of protection for the helpless, but more often than not, we will patiently endure, not endure insult with insult. Are you rejoicing or resisting the tensions that come about? Are you fearing God, not, not humans? Whose commendation really matters to you? Whose, com- whose condemnation do you fear most? Are you willing and ready to gently and respectfully give an account for the hope you have? Are you willing to do it? One of the big ways which Christians will stand out is that we will insist that in the supermarket of religious options, Jesus is unique. By his death and resurrection, God has made him to be Lord of all and the only name under which people may be saved. That's what we'll hold to. Are you willing to actually give that account? Next year, there you will be embarking on a sustained effort all year long to announce this reality to the campus. I'm really sad I won't be here to see it. But if you're a Christian, whether you're regularly involved in EU activities or not, throw yourselves into this very public defence of the hope which we have as Christians. Don't disassociate yourself. Are you ready? Do you know what you would say if called to give an account for the hope in you? Have you thought through how you would explain to somebody why you're a Christian? What has God done in your life? How would you explain what he's done in the death and resurrection of Jesus? There are books to read, there are courses to do. Are you ready to give an account for the hope? We need to be willing and ready to defend our faith. But when we do, remember the tone is to reflect that of the Lord Jesus. Gently, respectfully. Won't be in a hot-headed or argumentative way, not returning insult for insult. Sure, it'll be spicy, by all means. It'll be interesting. It'll pull people up short. We'll argue the case persuasively and cogently. We will challenge unexamined positions of others fearlessly. But fundamentally, we will do it gently and winsomely, every time, following the Lord Jesus. The world desperately needs Christians who live good lives among the Gentiles. Desperately needs it. Who will gently give an account for the hope they have. Who will do good to all as they've got opportunity. Who will take every opportunity to talk of the hope that they have. For our hope is they may see those good lives and glorify God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the Lord Jesus who came to the very heart of evil to defeat it. We thank you that we have been made your own, those of us 